Sundays from today, March 22nd. So if Sojourn is your church home, if you're part of this family, this community, I would love for you to find a way to be there. And I look forward to chatting more with you in the week. Thank you, Austin, so much. It's good. In an attempt to not overtake his thunder, Austin is on our board, uh, our advisory board, and uh, he helps guide some of our decisions along those lines related to facility and finances and things like that. Um, All right, we're going to be in Matthew 27. If you have your Bibles, you can open um, there. We are in a season of Lent. Um, We're trying to slow down a bit during this season and to behold the cross. Um, Something took place 2,000 years ago that changed the course of human history. And we want to behold it. We want to allow it to shape and mold us. And so um, thus far, we've been in Matthew 26. We've seen Mary pour pour her life, her savings, her um, financial investment in this perfume upon Jesus. And we talked about how every event that happens after that Jesus is going to be smelling that perfume that took place on that night. Uh, We then moved on and we talked about the Passover meal and how significant the Passover meal was to the Israelites and how now it is significant, the greater Passover uh, meal referencing Jesus, uh, how significant that is for us. Uh, And then last week we talked about Jesus in the garden, uh, crying out to his father in this emotional distress, being troubled Um, seeing the cup of wrath that he would take for you and for the world for redemption. And so now we continue that. And today we're going to see uh, a suicide. We're going to see Jesus before a Roman leader. And then we are going to see this odd moment where a prisoner is set free. Uh, And so that's where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to start in Matthew 27. We good? We feel good? You guys need some coffee? Do we need to take like a five-minute TV timeout? You feeling good this morning? Daylight Savings 2021. Let's roll Matthew 27, verse 1. It says this. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. And Matthew sidebars and tells us the story. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and um, bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed. So the time draws near As famous as the crucifixion is to us, I'm not sure if we equate a suicide happening right around the time of this crucifixion. The passion narrative, it's raw. It's painful. It's an emotional 
turmoil. It's this distress that's taking place. And what Matthew's doing here um, is he's laying out two different people's failures. And so Matthew 26 at the very end, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We see the story of Peter and how he uh, betrayed his best friend. He failed. He uh, did not meet the mark that he was hoping to meet. He denied and deserted his friend. He left weeping. And we talked about this story about in the Gospel of Luke, how Jesus, right after Peter denied him the third time, the rooster crows, Jesus looks over at Peter and makes eye contact with him. And that was a reminder to Peter of the mercy of his Lord. And then three days later, after Jesus died and then rose, we see that Peter comes running to Jesus. He doesn't hide after his failure, but he runs to Jesus. But then we have Judas on the other side, another one who failed. And he never embraced who Jesus really was. He manipulated, he deceived, and in his cunning, he became the means of Jesus' betrayal. So we see these two different people, two different failures. One story ends with full rehabilitation and the other ends with despair and suicide. The church needs to be a safe place to talk about difficult things, especially if those things are life and death. And I want to sit here considering um, the realities of suicide for a few minutes together. The first point I have for us this morning is that life may get bumpy, but you can get through it by God's grace and goodness. My wife and I are watching The Crown right now, and uh, we're kind of locked in, finishing up. Uh, Charles has now just met uh, Diana. Don't give me any spoilers. Uh, And so we've been pretty invested into the royal family, and so real talk, confession. When I found out that Harry and Meghan were having an interview with Oprah, I was excited. Uh, That wouldn't have been Ernie pre-Crown, but for whatever reason, it is what it is. And so um, during the interview, uh, there's been a lot of talk about that interview. Um, and suffice it for the conversation today, uh, Megan, um, the, I don't know the proper, the duchess or whatever, I can't remember what she's supposed to be, um, but we're in America, so I, I can make that mistake here. Um, and uh, she talked about mental health. She talked about some challenges with uh, temptations towards suicide. And this is my point is this is in our face consistently. Um, There's stats even coming out of this pandemic and the effects that it's had on people um, across the world when it comes to mental health related things. You know, suicide is not a one-size-fit-all problem. Uh, It happens because of trauma. It happens because of chemical imbalances and significant stress and external circumstances and personal failures. You know, for Judas, it was a personal failure. He could not get over the fact that he did what he did, and it led down that path. For others, it might be something very different. The trauma and chemical imbalances and stress and external circumstances and our own personal failures and depression are all serious and can be killers. But hear me, none are bigger than Jesus. I say that not to be trite or just because we're in the church, but truly That is the case. There may be a boatload of crazy, but you are not crazy. You're God's handiwork. Mental illness is an epidemic, and it's rampant in our world. In 2019, there were, in America, 4,511 people who committed suicide. That's not just a number. That's people. That's friends. That's parents. That's children. That's real 
people, one person every 10 minutes. So three things to consider around this for us as the church. The first is this, that we need to destigmatize suicide. The Joker, uh, 13 Reasons Why, that Netflix series, uh, aren't helping this conversation. The church uh, needs to be able to talk about these types of things because if we are a hospital for broken people, we need to actually be a hospital for broken people. There's no stigma regarding mental illness here. Everyone is welcome here. You can be honest here. I hope that is the case. We must be able to be honest in the church. It's the church that once said that uh, suicide was the unpardonable sin, and we need to recalibrate and say it's a safe place here, regardless of what you are struggling with. What we need to say and what we will say is that it's okay to not be okay. You know, this might be true for you and struggles you have, or this might be true of how you care for friends in your life, but you're one or two degrees away from people who are struggling with these types of things. The last thing the church needs to be is a fake church. We need to give people a place to heal because it is a process. We need to destigmatize suicide. Secondly, we need to deglamorize suicide. There's a copycat response that comes to um, suicide. You know, post-Robin Williams' suicide, uh, there was an uptick of 10%. Uh, after Marilyn Monroe committed suicide, there was a 12% uptick. Uh, there's a vortex that can suck people in, and we need to deglamorize that. You know, it's not better for you or anyone else if you take your life. Your destiny or your friend's destiny isn't in leaving. Your destiny is in staying. No one is better off without you. Suicide is, it doesn't alleviate pain regardless of how deep the pain may be, but it always multiplies pain. We need to deglamorize it within the church. And third, we need a better declaration. We need a better declaration in the church. It's okay to not be okay, but that's not the end point. Man, if that's it, that's sad. That's, that's not really hope filled, but it's okay to not be okay, but Jesus is okay. And that's what we talked about last week when it came to uh, the way that Jesus approached his father in the garden. I mean, trouble. Remember we talked about turning the corner and seeing your friend mutilated uh, out of the car, car flipped over, how you would feel in that moment. That's what Jesus felt as he saw the cup of wrath coming before him. And what did he do in that moment? He said, my father, my father, three times in his prayers, he leaned on his father, the most stable reality in the universe. He leaned in. It's okay to not be okay, but it's also significant and imperative to know that we have one who is stable and who is okay and who is victorious. We can be broken down to the bottom and still trust in his goodness. Our circumstances don't define the goodness of God. Sometimes our circumstances are opposite. Everything we have come to believe about God. But the cross, which is why I love that this is tied in right in the middle of the passion narrative. That the cross is proof that God is good even in our darkest night. You can believe that even in your darkest night, that the cross is enough. We can trust God's goodness. We can trust 
that he's for us and he cares for us even if we're going through hell. We can trust that he's there, that he's stable. Jesus, in his darkest moment, clung to the stability of his father, even when he didn't feel stable. Man, it's a, it's a reminder for us, regardless of if we don't feel that we can trust that he's there, he's with us, he hasn't left us. Life may get bumpy, but you can get through it. You can get through it by God's grace and his goodness. And the cross, again, is the declaration to us that he cares for us. He's not going to leave you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He moved heaven and earth to come, to die, to rescue you. He will not forsake you. And he is pursuing you. He proved that you were worth fighting for. And he declared, regardless of how dark it may feel, that your life is worth living. So we look, we kickstart this section, this reality of suicide. And we remember that. I just want to take a moment and pray. I want to pray for our body, our community. And I want to pray and that we would be a place of healing and hope. Would you guys pray with me? Father, I know that this subject is not just a subject for some people. This is staring them in the face. Lord, even within our community, I pray that you would protect and remind our body of your stability, even when we feel like we're going through the valley of the shadow of death. So Lord, I pray that you would lead our community, you would protect our community, you would give hope to our community, and I pray that our, that's for Daisy, I pray that our community would be a light to this area. Lord, I pray that we would be a safe place for people to come as they are, and I pray that we would be able to supply substantial hope and healing. Do a rich work in this community. Yes, your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. We love you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's keep rolling. Matthew 27, verse 11. It says this. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they... And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, for Jesus, who is called Christ. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. 
When Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Second point for us this morning is Jesus is unfazed by the power of Rome. It's this tension I want us to see as we're walking through this. We, we see the terror that Jesus is experiencing as he looks at the, the cup and he says, Father, if there's another way, I want to go a different direction. And so there's this, this, this side of Jesus is terrified. And then there's this other side of Jesus where he is just strong as an ox. He's unmoved. And we see this tension in this moment. Both of these realities are happening and taking place before us. See, the religious leaders had no power to execute somebody. So their goal was to try to win the crowd over. And if they could win the crowd over, they would be able to leverage the crowd to enable uh, Jesus to be crucified. See, for someone to just be, uh, for someone to blaspheme God, for a Roman, uh, that meant nothing. That was not uh, le- leading someone to uh, guilt and therefore to execution. And so the religious leaders were trying to use the people to leverage themselves before Pilate. So they bring Jesus before Pilate. Pilate is a military officer. He's a governor over Judea from 26 AD through 36 AD. He was hated by many people in his day. And so he was the final say. If someone's going to get crucified, you got to go through Pilate. And so that's what they were doing. They were leveraging. They used the night trial to leverage, to gain momentum with the people so that they could bring Jesus before Pilate. So they bring this tied up innocent man before Pilate with the crowd on their side. And we see them begin to do, uh, they, they bring Jesus before Pilate. And and so a couple of things happen here. We see, um, for one, that Jesus is silent. He's like a, a sheep led to the slaughter. And Matthew's trying to emphasize uh, scripture that's in Isaiah 53 and this, this reminder that, that God is going to come and he's going to be crucified or he's going to be led to the slaughter. We also see uh, in this text that the Pilate's wife is wigging out. She has this dream about Jesus and he's like, listen, don't do it. And so you can imagine Pilate's experiencing these, these pressures in this moment. And, um, you know, we've talked about this before, but the Gospels support each other. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I told you this last week, but um, it's, it's as if, I heard it said before, it's as if there's a fire in a home, and you have some neighbors come out, uh, your next-door neighbors come out, and they're watching uh, this fire take place, and you're seeing it, and they're seeing it, and, and so everyone's giving a similar account, but everybody's seeing something a little different. The baseline is that the house is on fire. The difference is that you see a cat jump out of a window. Maybe somebody else didn't see the cat. Someone did see the dog jump out the window, and so they're talking about the dog. You're talking about the cat. Either way, this reality is taking place, and that's what's happening in the Gospels. We see the same event. Baseline, Jesus is the Son of God who's come to die for our sins, but there's different things that are taking place, and we allow the Gospels to color in the broader story of what's happening here. And so in the Gospel of John, he's coloring in a bit more of what's happening with Jesus' interaction with Pilate. And so I'd love to go there and just read a handful of verses with you to kind of better understand what exactly is happening. Because there's some drama taking place here that Matthew uh, doesn't speak to, but John does. And so let's read in John 18 a few verses and in John 19 uh, a few verses. John 18, 33, it says, 
So Pilate entered the headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Right? So we're, we're there. We're, he's now before Jesus. They're having this dialogue, same as where we were in Matthew. And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you said that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. And so we see that as the first interaction. We fast forward to John 19.1. It says, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. We'll talk about that more in a minute. And then we fast forward to verse 5, and it says this. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to him, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him, your, uh, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he was made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. I think I want to read a few more verses. We're just going to keep rolling here. He entered the headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So we have these two conversations taking place. The first is... Uh, Pilate's dialoguing with Jesus, and then he goes out to the Jews, and then he comes back to Jesus. So he pulls Jesus aside twice, trying to get his head around the claims that have taken place that this man has said that he is God. So the first time he comes to him and he says, I don't, I don't get it. Why do they hate you? What's happening? And Jesus uh, responds to him. And then the second time, he flogs Jesus. And again, we'll explain that in a minute. And he pulls Jesus aside. And he's freaking out. Pilate has this tension within his soul. He knows that this man is innocent, and he's, he's terrified that this riot is taking place right outside his doors. So trying to maintain composure, trying to have this outward power, but inwardly he's terrified of Jesus. He says, speak to me. Do you not know I have the power to destroy you? So get this picture. Jesus has been slapped. He's been punched. He's been beaten. He's been spit upon. This crown of thorns, this is not an actual, like, again, back to the crown. It's not that kind of crown. This is a painful crown. This is one-inch uh, thorns, these strong thorns. They wrap around this reed, and they put on their head, and they take a stick, and they hit it. And so it goes deep within his, I mean, blood's everywhere. Blood's all over his face. This is the Jesus that the pilot is talking to. Try to get your mind around that. But it's not just that he's got a bloody face. He does have a bloody face. He's also just been scourged or flogged. And, and for us, we, we don't know what that means, truly. But it's a leather whip with, with pieces of metal, with pieces of bone, and with pieces of glass and iron. 
And what they would do is before they would lead somebody to be crucified, they would take this whip and, and under 40 times, it was always under 40 times because they knew at 40 times it's probably going to kill the person. It's typically under 30, maybe 39 times. They would whip the back and they would whip the waist and even the inner parts of your legs. And if done enough, it would kill you but be, uh, because of shock or pain or loss of blood. And so Pilate, again, verse 1 of 19, says that he's led him to be flogged. He's trying to see if that's enough to appease the crowd. And so Jesus is a bloody pulp when he approaches Pilate. He's not this, this you know, he's, his blood is everywhere. I mean, his back is gone. His legs are gone. His, he's got the crown of thorns. I mean, so get this picture in your mind as he's now brought Jesus the second time back into his office of source. And then in this moment, he says, I have the power to kill you. He's trying to flex before Jesus. And, he, and Jesus says, you would have no authority. I mean, imagine, this is Jesus. He's, his beard plucked out, blood everywhere. And yet Jesus responds to him. He says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. See, the king is revealing who the king is in this moment. It's as if Jesus is saying, Pilate, you wimp, you are so swayed by these people, but my father is the one that's in charge of this whole thing. Jesus knew that one day Rome would cease to be the epicenter of the known world. Likewise, one day America and all of its presidents will be a footnote in history, but the king, but but the but his kingdom will never end. He's unfazed. He's unfazed before the Roman ruler. And yet he's terrified as he looks at the justice of God coming down the pipe for him to bring about redemption and to restore this world. So we see he's unfazed by this Roman ruler. And then the third thing we see is, is this, third point, we are like Barabbas. In all this ruckus, uh, Pilate had this cu uh, custom to exonerate uh, a prisoner. So every Passover, his tradition through the 10 years of his rule was that he would bring forth someone that the crowd could choose. Who you want from prison, you can have whoever you want. And so this year was no different than previous years. And so this year, he brings that up to the people. And they say Barabbas. And then the conversation goes a little further. And, and they want Barabbas in exchange for Jesus. Barabbas was a leader in a violent uh, insurrection. And so in, in this uh, transaction, this innocent king is now made guilty while Barabbas is made innocent. See, Barabbas's freedom was on the coattails of an innocent man becoming guilty. And friends, this is the fruit of the gospel. This is, this is what we receive in the story of the cross. We are like Barabbas. The, the gospel is both cosmic and personal. It's not just personal, and it's not just cosmic, but it's both cosmic and personal. It is a future reality where God will redeem everything that's marred and broken because of sin and death, but it's also personal in that he has pursued you and exchanged his life for you. So from, from a personal front, we receive what's called the great exchange. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, we read what this means, and Paul tells us, he says, For our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
So for us, we go back to that New City Catechism that our sin goes to Jesus. All of it. The best of it. The worst of it. All of our lives. All of us are placed upon Jesus. And Jesus' righteousness is exchanged for our sin. It's a free gift and it changes our status. This, This is where Christianity is unlike every other religion. But it's not about the do's and the don'ts. It's about a free gift that God has given to us. Our sin is put on Jesus and his status is put on us. I heard a story recently about an NCIS episode. Anybody ever go down that path, cops and robbers kind of show? Nobody. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Pops. Um, so he's always there for me, I tell you what. Um, so one episode had a... Uh, Story should have known that this wasn't going to really sit well, um, but uh, but a story about an older man and he had he had uh, was a World War II vet. He's now in his 80s. He fought in World War II and he was accused of a crime and uh, the the Navy uh, had come to take him. And so there were these military police that had come to uh, arrest him. And they're about to take him into custody, and I don't know what happened, but somehow. Uh, they saw under his shirt this Congressional Medal of Honor because he, he fought in uh, Iwo Jima. And immediately, though they were in this episode, immediately though they were seeking to arrest him, they had to, in that moment, uh, snap to and, uh, and salute because of this Congressional Medal of Honor that he was wearing. There was a status that defined him even though he was guilty. See, Jesus was treated, treated as if he did all we had done. And God accepts you as if you did everything Jesus did. This great exchange took place. And now we are covered in the medals of Jesus. Now we are accepted and we now have this status. Now we can have jokes about wanting to have status in life. But truly before heaven, before the almighty God, we now have this status because of what Jesus has done for us. You now have a new status where you are forgiven. You don't have to um, feel like you have to continue to carry the guilt of your past because God's dealt with it on the cross. You're now loved in a way that you couldn't imagine because of the cross. You are now accepted. You are now adopted because of the cross. It is when we get this in us that it changes how we live to know that we have a status before God because of Jesus. Times may get bumpy. Times may be hard, but we can cling to who we are and what God has done for us. And and our temptation is to go back to slavery. It's as if you can imagine Barabbas. He's uh, Pilate brings him before the people, and he's like, you're now free. And Barabbas is like, no, nah, I'm good. Prison's all right, man. Like, no, he wouldn't do that. And sometimes we have the temptation to go back. Where Jesus has freed us, he has exchanged his life with ours, and we have the temptation to go live the life that we once did. And man, Jesus invites us to live in the status that we have, loved, accepted, forgiven. Our challenge is to embrace what Jesus has done. We are just like Barabbas. Friends, God has declared the depths of his love for you, his care for you, and he has exchanged the best and worst of you with his son. And now we have this status before God of accepted, loved, cared for, nothing to prove. So this 
text, it gives us a handful of things to consider. But it's a reminder that, man, life may get bumpy, and it will, but we can trust in the goodness of God. We, we remember that Jesus is, uh, there's no human ruler that causes him to blink. And third, that we are just like Barabbas. Over these next two weeks, starting next Sunday, we're going to be uh, full throttle in the crucifixion story. And I encourage you to stay locked in. I encourage you to even uh, be reading about where we're going to be because this is what declares to us the depths of God's love for us. There is no greater declaration than the crucifixion. We'll be there over these next few weeks. We are just like Barabbas, and God has given us a status that we could never have fathomed. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you've offered to us. Thank you for the way you've loved us. Thank you for the declaration of the cross. And the way it recalibrates who we are and whose we are. It clarifies who you are. And that you will never leave us or forsake us. So Lord, for us, each individually, I pray that you'd be near. Move within our hearts. Draw us close to you again, in Jesus' name.